0: Hey folks, welcome to the Smith Sense Podcast. Today, I have a pretty sensitive conversation with my good friend and mentor, Doug Casey. Now, Doug is known for his pretty outlandish opinions about some things, but quite frankly, the situation that we find ourselves in now is something that he's talked about for a long time. While we're experiencing this turmoil here in the United States, the social unrest, the lot of bitter feelings sense of uh, danger, I think, around all of us right now. Doug's watching it all from his widescreen television in Uruguay. In any case, Doug has a lot of thoughts about what's coming, what's here already, and what we might do about it. And while this isn't the most optimistic episode you'll ever hear, I do think there's something to be gained by listening. So sit back, and here's Doug Casey. All right, Doug. Thanks for joining me here. Last time we spoke, we talked about the money system, and I had a lot of actually really good feedback from people that couldn't wait for us to do a part two because we just got into so many different things that we couldn't really go as far with it as I'd hoped to. So this is that part two. And I want to talk more about the money system again, but there's a whole bunch of other things that are happening with all the social unrest and social strife and all the craziness that's happening right now. I really want to get your take on that as well.
1: Well, I suppose I can gloat in a way because here in the... um Backward little welfare state of Uruguay, where I am on my ranch, nothing is different from before. So I feel rather smug watching the collapse of the U.S. comfortably on my widescreen as opposed to uncomfortably out my front window. I might only add that over the next six months, I expect I can turn the audio off and just put the Rolling Stones Street Fighting Man on while I'm watching the screen.
0: Do you say collapse of the U.S.? Do you think that's really what's happening right now?
1: Well, you know, that really is kind of a cosmic question because I don't believe in so-called American exceptionalism because it has all kinds of uh, nationalistic overtones, uh, shades of um, Teddy Roosevelt and uh, so forth. But the idea of the U.S. actually is not just exceptional but unique. The U.S., at least until recently, was about all that was left of Western civilization. Values like free minds and free markets and free press and free thought and um, Boy Scout virtues, trustworthiness, loyalty. I mean, Western Europe is degenerate and degraded and is just a giant Dystopian welfare state. Now, the U.S. is all that's left. And if the U.S. goes under, look, we're, we're actually moving towards a worldwide police state, which has been evidenced by this worldwide hysteria over the coronavirus. You can't do anything and go anywhere. It seems that we're all going to have COVID passports if we want to get on a plane. This is really, really disturbing stuff.
0: It is. And I think they're almost. You could think of them as two separate issues, but when they come together, when you have the decline of like Western civilization and at least uh, Enlightenment values, and you have police state coming together, it seems like the worst case scenario.
1: That's true. It's um, not quite Orwell's 1984, and it's not quite Huxley's Brave New World, but it takes some of the worst elements of both of them. So I don't really know what's to be done about it. The problem is, is that it's not much that you or I as individuals or perhaps anybody as an individual can do at this point. Although, I've got to say that um, in my upcoming third novel, Assassin, following the uh, history of Charles uh, Knight, our hero, he becomes an assassin because he decides that he's got to do something. And what can you do as an individual? You can eliminate the most malicious government officials that are trying to do all these things. Now, that's highly politically incorrect. And it's just a good thing I'm saying this in a novel. Otherwise, the men in black would be knocking on my door. Anyway, it'll be out next week.
0: And I will be one amongst the first to read it. I can't wait. I'm very excited for it. Well, thank you. So there's not much that individuals can do exactly. But if this is a general decline of these Western values, is there any refuge left in the world at all? Like, You said there's no country that really holds up these values in their way. Not that, say, the United States has done a great job in the most recent decades either, but there's not any other place. So what's the refuge for the individual who still values these things?
1: (laughs) Well, I've thought about that. And, of course, I've always advocated having a crib outside of your home country so that things went bad, as they did in Germany in the 30s or Russia in the teens, or China in the forties, or Vietnam in the seventies. There's a new one every year and several every decade. So you can leave and go someplace else so you won't have to suffer the unpleasantness and inconvenience. But where can you do that today? Because all the countries in the world are going in the wrong direction.
0: It's not just a one state that's kind of turned you know, in the wrong direction with new leadership or whatever. There's also the global economic phenomenon that's happening now that is a lot more akin to the Great Depression, where it really was global, and that economic tension stirs the pot, and lots of countries can end up turning ways that you can't even foresee them ending up right now. I remember not long ago, a decade ago, I looked at Chile as being one of the most stable, most reliable countries in South America because it had a huge middle class. You know, and so it's usually that there's a big division in wealth, I guess. You know, inequality of of income, then places tend to be less stable, but Chile was looking really, really strong in that regard a decade ago, but they've had lots of problems with protests and so forth over the last year or so, and it seems like that's probably going to get worse.
1: You're absolutely right. I was in Chile back in about 1970, the first time, when Allende was still in office, and he was a communist that was elected by the democracy of Chile, was legitimate. The average Chilean wanted a communist as their president. Then he was overthrown a few years later by Pinochet. And uh, this is interesting, talking about Chile, just for a moment. I won't spend too much time on this. The thing is, is that Chile, which was in those days just a backward mining province. I mean, it was nothing. Beautiful, scenic, but uh, economically very backward. And after um, Pinochet assisted Allende to his eternal reward, (laughs) I expect it was in hell. Okay, so he transformed the economy. He free-marketized the economy. It was marvelous. And now, even today, Chile is the most advanced country in all of Latin America. Best telecom, everything's good, but it's degenerating again because that was just too much for the Chileans to handle, that everything worked. Now they're electing another communist, and the interesting thing is, is that Pinochet A military dictator, it's true, not good. The things he did were good. He killed a couple thousand people, probably, not good. But interestingly, at about the same time, the Argentine generals killed someplace in between 20 and 40,000. The Brazilian generals killed about that number. Even the Uruguayan generals, and this has always been the most peaceful country in Latin America, Uruguay. They killed about 500 people. But have any of those generals ever been punished for it? No, because they were left-wing generals. They didn't bring uh, Milton Friedman's acolytes down to reform the economy. So things like this make me feel very pessimistic about human nature in general.
0: It's a worrisome time, you know, because I think that I was talking to you recently about I shared a video with you my son was doing, and I'm like, my son, who's a teenager, and he's seeing everything around him. Feeling like he's being attacked. He's not really being attacked. He's only theoretically being attacked, you know? But it feels like he's under attack and feels like America and American, what he considers American values and the Enlightenment era type things are under attack. And if anything, it's radicalizing him. I mean, it's pushing him into a trench, essentially, a side that he would not otherwise be in, I think. And I feel like if it's happening with him and I could see it happening with him, I gotta imagine it's happening with everyone, you know, in the country. I mean, lots of people this is happening to. And how does that not then lead to some sort of escalation? Not from my son, of course, but from just the general population, just getting tired of being told what to do. And I mean, how does that not lead to escalation?
1: I don't see how it doesn't. Uh, frankly, I can feel, even from down here now, just by corresponding with friends of mine in the U.S., I can feel the escalation. I can feel the polarization. I can feel the way the people that um, would generally vote Republican actively are disliked, even hated by the people that tend to vote Democrat and vice versa. The U.S. is no longer a country that shares common values. You know, it's turned into a multicultural domestic empire. That's how I describe it. It actually should break up. Unfortunately, though, Even when countries should break up, sometimes it happens peacefully, like when the USSR broke up into 15 constituent countries, and Russia should break up into many more, incidentally, and Yugoslavia broke up into six, and Czechoslovakia broke up into two, and I expect the United Kingdom will break up two, at least into Scotland and England. The US ought to break up. It's too large. It's too disparate. It's ungovernable. But the last time that um, some states tried to peacefully secede. It was known as the uh, Civil War, which it wasn't. It wasn't a civil war because it was a war of secession. The South did not want to control the central government in Washington. They just wanted to go away. This time, if we have a war, it will likely be a civil war where these different groups that hate each other each try to take control of the government in Washington. And I'm afraid that in November, and I speak of somebody that didn't vote for Trump last time because I don't believe in voting because my vote doesn't count and many other reasons. But I put a money bet on the fact that Trump would win in 2016. I won't make that bet this time. I think the Democrats are going to win in November. I hope I'm wrong.
0: It's weird for you to say you hope you're wrong because normally you think to hell with them all is what I've heard from you over the years. You know They're all a problem. So to hear you say, well, you hope you're wrong and you hope that Trump would win this time or that the Trojan horse of you know, a senile Joe Biden would win. What's changed in your thinking to make you feel like it actually matters this time?
1: Well, look at the about 20 people that were on the debate stage wanting to be the Democratic candidate for presidency. I mean, there were several active communists, almost all of them were socialists, and Biden was about the most rational of these people. So, The whole country has gone radically to the left over the last three generations. And I attribute a lot of it to the fact that the cultural Marxists have taken over the education system from top to bottom, from the colleges down to the high schools, down to the grade schools. And kids go off to school to be indoctrinated hours every day. And they hear this stuff and their minds, which are basically tabula erasa, are filled with these concepts. And it's really hard to unlearn a, con- a something once you learn it. It's like when I was learning to play polo. I didn't take writing lessons and I picked up lots of bad habits and improper concepts of writing. And it took me years to unlearn them. It would have been much easier to learn, learn it right the first time. But in schools, kids are poisoned by all this stuff from their teachers. So I don't know how you turn this around at this point. And the reason I support Trump. Or let's say, and I hope he wins, I'm not sure I support him, because he's an economic ignoramus, and he's extremely dangerous when it comes to foreign affairs, okay? But the good news is that he's a cultural conservative. I mean, at least he sees the days of leave it to beaver and father knows best and, you know, stuff like that. When America was placid and prosperous and orderly, he likes that. He doesn't want to totally overthrow the culture. So that's why people are voting for him. But if the economy is as bad as I expect it's going to be by November, the average American who thinks the world revolves around the government, and he's right, the world does revolve around the government these days, is going to want to change. He's going to want free shit. And that's what the Democrats are offering.
0: You know, one of the other things that is, I think, happening this time with Trump He's looking very weak in that people see cities on fire. They see people breaking the law. They see the uneven justice under the law, uneven allocation of the law, even, you know, uneven enforcement of the law to the detriment of the people who support him and the fact that he doesn't seem to come to their defense ever. At some point, I think people look at it, they go, well, the guy who I'm supporting doesn't appear to support me when it counts then I'm just not going to vote this time. And I think that's probably the biggest risk to him, actually, is that the people who, with their vote of him last time around, were primarily doing it as a rejection of the status quo, a rejection of the elites that run everything, you know? But if he can't come to anyone's aid or
1: refuses to do it, I think that most people are going to be able to stay home. Very possible, but at the same time, maybe the election is going to be determined not by who votes or doesn't vote, but who cheats best. Everything from mail-in ballots, which make it really easy to cheat, to um, electronic fudging of the voting machines where people go there. And the Democrats are um, much more skilled and experienced in cheating than the Republicans are. So uh, how about that?
0: Well, they just seem like they generally organize a lot better. I mean, even if you look at everything that's going on right now with the civil strife, there is no organized counter to any of it. I believe there's a lot of people that don't like the idea of uh, all the statues in the country being stripped down in the dead of night, and yet there's no organized resistance to it whatsoever. And of course, the authorities just watch private businesses burn. That is one example, I think, that shows that Democrats are just better organizers for things. I think they get things done. I also think that it's almost like the worst case scenario you could imagine, though, in terms of an escalation of violence, if Trump wins. Because I think that he has been considered an illegitimate president his whole term. If he wins the election, it'll be considered illegitimate. There'll be some reason as to some group cheated, probably Russia involved again, or something like that. And inevitably, you think it's probably going to be close, because most elections are now. But if he ends up winning, it'll certainly be considered illegitimate. And the truth is, is that all of this uh, lack of social order has come into being under his presidency. So it's hard to imagine that if he's been unable to stop or unwilling to take any action to stop anything that's happened so far, you think if it's a close election, people freak out thinking it's totally illegitimate that he wins. And then either he finally responds in a way that totally escalates things and they go instantly out of control, or he lets things just continue to devolve as he has so far. What do you think of that perspective? Does that make any sense to you?
1: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I don't know what's going on in his mind, and I don't know who is counseling him, except that it seems like he's shown extraordinarily bad judgment in surrounding himself with counselors. That's for sure. All these people, they're horrible people. And then they go away. Why I hired him in the first place? I don't know. The reason, of course, is that he has no philosophical center. Yes just a cultural conservative. That's all. This has just really got to end badly. One thing that happened over the weekend, I think, was there were about a thousand blacks who were armed and went to uh, Stone Mountain, Georgia. Did you follow that?
0: I did. Yeah, I saw that. There were a spinoff of the Black Panthers, I think.
1: Kind of. Yeah. These are really radical dudes. They actually came out, their leader, who called himself "master of something or other," which I thought we can't even have master bedrooms anymore, <laughs> and he challenges the honky rednecks to come out and fight. And there they are. This is the first time I've ever seen or heard of a thousand black men with uh, AR-15s and such actually looking for a fight altogether. This is a big deal.
0: I think it is a big deal, and I think that you know it's totally different than the Black Lives Matter movement, though. It's a separate group. They want an ethno state. They're marching through Stone Mountain, Georgia, which I believe that was the birthplace of the KKK, was it not? I mean, it's a, certainly a center of the KKK, historically. So they were doing it there specifically to taunt as a political action, you know? It seemed to me one of the things that was really clear about those guys A lot of them looked like they were former military. I mean, they looked trained and skilled and disciplined, and they weren't carrying crazy signs or burning things down or assaulting individuals, but they looked like they were a force to be reckoned with.
1: Yeah, it kind of looked that way to me, too. How can this possibly end well?
0: Apparently, give those guys Texas and it'll all be fine. That's what they're asking for.
1: They're going to have some real trouble. The Texans? Yeah, the Mexicans think Texas is theirs. Some years ago in Aspen, up marketplace, okay, but there's a um, little Mexican restaurant that I used to like to go to. And on the uh, wall, they had a little sign in Spanish that was talking about the Reconquista. And basically, the Hispanics are going to take back not just Texas, but Arizona, New Mexico, California, Colorado. Well, that's basically what the U.S. took away from Mexico and the Mexicans uh, at the time of. The Texas Republic and the Alamo in the eighteen forties. the blacks are going to have a hard time if they try to take Texas
0: yeah, I think so too. I think there's a lot of Texans that would oppose it in addition to the Mexicans. That group was interesting. I'm a little torn actually, so when I saw it, Doug, I see it as a it's something distinct and different from Black Lives Matter at the same time they're saying totally incendiary things, and they're walking around carrying a r fifteens and I'm like. Yeah, I love the Second Amendment. I think it's really important. I'm happy to see him doing it and using their good trigger control. Even when they get in an argument with a motorist, they never point the gun at him. It's like really good. Like these guys are, have had experience with firearms, they know what they're doing. So I was happy to see that. And at
1: the same time, the things they're saying, I'm like, yeah, I don't like it, but like, that's cool. Yeah, of course. One of the other odd things is that blacks are talking about racism, America being a racist country. And the fact of the matter is, Every country, every ethnic group is racist. You know, racism is supposed to be horrible. And frankly, Martin Luther King was right. You have to judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Absolutely. Totally agree with that. Well, these people don't. Their whole lives are structured around their race. They're racists. That's the worst kind of racist. But actually, human beings are all basically racist. And why is that? Because genetically, from the time before we even became biologically modern humans, if somebody was not part of your little group, your clan or your tribe or a larger group in your race, they were probably an enemy because they were competing for very scarce resources. They were competing for that deer that kept you from starving to death that winter. It's kind of ingrained. It's like Muhammad Ali said. Everybody wants to be around people that look like them. Everybody likes a baby that looks like them. I'm sorry, it's natural and it's a genetic condition. But the problem with these people are that they emphasize race. The biggest thing in their life is the racial group that they're part of. And it's idiocy to call whites racist when, in fact, this country has accepted everybody from all races. I mean, what if these people tried to move to China? It would not work. No. When whites try to move to Africa, it doesn't work. And they're being kicked out of Africa. Even here in South America, the Native Indians are getting wind of this. Parts of South America are now turning into Indian country, where they don't want those conquistadors here anymore. I mean, this is pure racism.
0: The thing that is amazing about America actually, obviously has not been this way, for most of our history, but is that there aren't laws that favor one race over the other. So like, while you might have a preference, if you're a Latino and you have preference, do most of your business with other Latinos, you socialize with mostly other Latinos, and that's the way of life you have based on the choices you make, that's fine. As soon as you start to act against somebody else in a way that harms them, basically breaking the law, almost and regardless of their race, if you do it because of the race or for whatever else you might do it, it's illegal. And so that equal treatment under the law is like the great hope of having uh, diverse people work well together. It's equal treatment under the law. And what's strange is that historically, that's been a big problem in the United States and all over the world. But we have sort of freed ourselves from it. And the only sort of institutional biases that really exist that are legal are ones that actually go against Asian Americans and white Americans. And what people are seemingly, I think, don't realize is that the best they can hope for to be treated fairly is
1: equal treatment under the law. Like, that's it. That's the holy grail. Is it not? Exactly. But that's exactly what they're fighting against. They want special treatment and even reparations, which they might even get. I mean, I think the California A lower house has voted reparations for, I'm not sure who, blacks only or mulattoes. What if you're an octoroon? What if I'm an octoroon that moves from New York to take advantage of the reparation payments in California? I mean, these people are actually insane. They're psychologically aberrated. They really are.
0: It just seems to me that there's an effort, a real effort to stow division along racial lines. And I think most of this is not instigated by African-Americans, by the way. I think it's instigated by white liberals. I really do. I think what you have is that when George Floyd was killed by that cop, it was the most united in opinion I have seen in America since 9-11. Everyone thought that cop was a piece of shit who needed to be in handcuffs. And why wasn't he already? Yes. What the specific charge was, people could argue but disagree, but that he should be free? No one thought that. You should have got the perk walk. Everyone agreed. So it does seem weird to me that we take a moment where there's literal total agreement and somehow it gets turned into the most divisive issue of my
1: lifetime. How does that happen overnight? Because the pot was boiling. It was just the catalyst that made it all blow up. This has been coming for some time. And I'm afraid that as bad as things are right now, they're still kind of held together Because the stock market and the bond markets are basically at all-time highs. When they melt down and the banks are in trouble and the insurance companies and people's pension funds and there are going to be another wave of unemployed people, I mean, who can say what's going to happen? Because the U.S. is very urbanized. Cities don't produce food or anything like that. Have you heard of a guy
0: named Peter Turchin, T-U-R-C-H-I-N?
1: I've read a few of his things from time to time on the internet. Don't know anything about him, really.
0: Well, I know he's a Russian-American scientist and he studies like complexity science and cultural evolution, and just to sort of look at how societies grow and change and evolve over time. And he has this book. It came out, I think, in 2016 called Ages of Discord. I found this incredibly fascinating. What he said in, I think it was 2010, he wrote an article saying, I think things are bad now. Wait until 2020. And so he's got a lot of press recently because he said things will be really bad in 2020. And the underlying thesis really is that what happens is when there's a overpopulation of elites, they start fighting amongst each other. So basically, the number of elites has overpopulated. So they start fighting amongst each other, and they essentially use the people essentially to beat each other. says overpopulation of elites is the big problem. And if you looked at what was happening now, we're really, it's a fight among the elites in Washington or the elites in our society, the Ivy League educated lawyers. One thing he measures, he measures the number of people that are graduating with law degrees as a way to show overpopulation of elites. But he says that that's the root of it. And even a little bit lower than the overpopulation of elites, he ties these specific eras where you have these, this great discord to, uh, And I know you're a free marketer completely and all that, but this is kind of the thesis is that it all comes down to overpopulation in general, like competition for employment. So he looks at like the really bad period in 1919, where there were all kinds of race riots that happened. Cities were definitely burning then, and there was all kinds of crazy conflict that happened in 1919. That was at the end of a period where the population grew by almost 20% of immigrants in two decades then African-Americans were relocating from the South to the North during that time period. And so it just had this boiling over point where people were competing for employment, for good jobs, essentially.
1: Yes, and of course, there was the dislocation from demobilization after World War I. And of course, we had the Spanish flu at the same time, which was an order of magnitude more serious than this uh, COVID hysteria. So yeah, that's true.
0: The core argument being that Unfettered immigration, let's say thoughtless immigration, is one of the key sources in his mind of wealth inequality, because essentially the wealth kind of goes to capital versus labor in that situation. His basic idea, which I was like, I'm not sure if I'm which ideology this guy has, you know, his philosophical bent, but you know, it certainly kind of made some sense, you know. And we've had unfettered immigration virtually into the U.S. for the last many decades. His argument, I guess, is that that is the core reason, like the catalyst that creates the circumstances where you could have this sort of
1: conflict and unrest. If people have different religions, if they speak different languages, and they look different, and they like different food, and everything about them is different, and you force them to compete for the same resources, which is what has to be what happens in a democracy where things are being dispensed from the government, it's asking for trouble. Yeah, I think it is quite predictable. And for that reason, it's quite predictable that uh, this isn't going to go away easily. I don't know how it's going to settle out, but I suspect that if the Democrats win, they're going to try to put all of these socialist programs into effect. Everything from a guaranteed annual income, which we've had a taste of with people getting A thousand for this and 600 a week for that and so forth. And people like that, okay? Food stamps will be ramped up to a living level. When people can't pay their utility bills, which many are not going to be able to pay, or pay their rent or their mortgages, well, got to free that because you can't have millions more people living on the streets. We've just started to see this, just started to.
0: We're already in what I think you could argue is uh a Experimenting with modern monetary theory, right? Wouldn't you say? I mean we're basically we don't have the money, we're just sort of making it up anyway and yeah, dishing it out. And it's just gonna ramp up further from here, wouldn't you say?
1: Absolutely. Even the Democrats recognize that if they raise taxes much, it's gonna have a very bad effect. And they can't borrow anymore. Well, except selling money to the Federal Reserve, which really means printing the money. And so far there hasn't been massive retail inflation. In uh, fact, this has been good inflation with the stock market and the bond market. So, uh, yeah, yeah, of course they're going to do that.
0: No amount of tax increases anyway would balance the budget at this point anyway. It won't make any difference. There aren't enough taxes to collect.
1: No, it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. The next step, I suspect, I mean, there are lots of possible next steps, but one of them might be the, the major export of the U.S. for many years now well, about 40 years, actually, well, more than that, actually, has been U.S. dollars. And at some point, I mean, dollars are used everywhere in the U.S. SWIFT system to wire money, and even like the Chinese and the Russians have to use it. Yeah, they have to settle in dollars. Well, that's all going to come to an end as the dollar starts losing value rapidly. This is why I remain bullish on gold, even though it's close to 1,800. And I hate buying things when they're expensive, because I was buying gold when it was $35 an ounce for 1971. So I hate buying it at these levels, but I don't see any reasonable alternative. Well, you can speculate in all kinds of things, and I do that, of course, but uh, to preserve capital and for savings and for prudence and safety, I don't know what you can do other than gold, frankly.
0: I agree with you. I mean, maybe there's some productive land perhaps that might work under certain circumstances, but I just think that the whole global trade scheme is up for a reshuffling, so you never really know, you know, even if you have productive land if you're gonna be not have access to markets in the same way that you've had access to them. You know, just everything can change over the next couple of years and it's hard to see anything other than maybe gold that is that kind of real safety hedge.
1: That's right. My friend Jim Rogers and- We've been friends for, Jesus, how long now? About 40 years, a long time. He's basically a commodity guy, more than anything else. So he plays with that. Of course, for many years, he said that at some point in the future, the guys driving the Lamborghinis are going to be the guys that are driving tractors in the middle of cornfields now because commodities are going to go up. And There's lots of good arguments that we can make for commodities going higher and for buying farmland. But at the same time, There's lots of arguments that you can make for continuing to stay away from them because the longest bear market in all of history is commodities. They've been going down for about 5,000 years with explosive jumps from time to time because of things like wars and whatever. But uh, with the development of nanotechnology and the perfection of biotechnology, both of which are related but different, and are going to happen. The price of all commodities is basically going to fall to the cost of the software when it comes to promote to the nano machines to disassemble something and in, into its component atoms and reassemble it into something else. Yeah, things can get very different if Ray Kurzweil is right about the singularity.
0: I wonder what you think about the fact that the monetary system seems just set, I guess, for a reset. And it has happened a lot of times in the past. I mean, talked about the fact that China and Russia have to use US dollars in order to be able to settle international transactions between the two countries. And the US dollar is the global reserve currency. It has all kinds of implications. And then we have a huge amount of debt, which is unpayable, as do most countries. The answer to our problems, I think, as a society, most people think what we need is we just need to spend more on the problem. I think that we Americans tend to believe that if something isn't working right, whether it be education, or healthcare. The problem is we're not allocating enough capital, which of course is absurd, but that seems to be our default solution. So in an environment where we have all these different factors going on, it's just hard to imagine that it's not set for a whole monetary reset, like where just the whole order of it fundamentally changes. Like when you go off the gold standard, you know, or you have like a Bretton Woods Agreement, or you start issuing greenbacks in the Civil War, you know, because there's not enough gold or, or something like that. I mean, it just seems like it could all reset.
1: Yes, it really could. And on so many different levels, because the problems that the US government as an entity has, and of course, one dangerous thing that people do is they conflate the US government with America. They're not. Not the same. And the same thing with state governments. The states that are bankrupt now, like California, New York, Massachusetts, Illinois, the usual suspects, they can't print money, and they're having a hard time borrowing more money, and taxes are already really high. So what are they going to do? At the same time as the demands on what they offer are getting greater. And it's the same thing for cities and counties in many places. So how's that going to sort out?
0: Well, one of the things that you floated a few years ago, and maybe at first as a joke, was the launching of a Fed coin. Essentially, with the popularity of Bitcoin, you thought, well, central banks will be on this in no time, and eventually they'll have their own. How do you feel about that today?
1: It's going to happen because bitcoin is popular everybody has a cell phone today and the government loves the idea of something like a fed coin because if you deal in fed coin and it's all done electronically which it necessarily has to be and it's all working through your cell phone it means they automatically know everything that you buy and sell everything that you own there's no cash anymore Okay, forget about buying stuff for $100 bills. And at that point, if they don't like you, they can close your account. Or if they deem,
0: for instance, that it's uh, really not in your best interest to be eating McDonald's cheeseburgers, they make it so that you cannot shop at McDonald's. Yes. It'd be really easy to do Just be like, just cut off that merchant for that person. You're too expensive on the health system, so they're going to cut you off. When I first thought about this, I was like, the biggest problem I had with this idea was that it would totally disintermediate the banks. I was always thinking, well, you know, the Fed and like the banks seem like they're pretty tight. It's hard to imagine, like the same people some a lot of the time. It's hard to imagine them doing that, you know, because the banks benefit so substantially from the current system. But I think when it comes down to it, my guess is that they could easily justify themselves and figure out some other feeding trough for the banks and their friends there to succeed in. But they could easily justify the benefits of moving it to a Fed coin versus the consequences of essentially killing the banking system. The biggest thing is that they printed all this money recently, and they're trying to get it pushed out to like help keep the economy going. But the way they have to do it is pretty inefficient. It's really inefficient to get the money out there. And then if they feel like there's too much money out there, to basically increase or decrease interest rates, or if you have too much inflation or deflation, it's so easy for them to be able to control those things, I think, from their perspective under that regime than it is today. Because all they have to do is they have to charge you for keeping Fed coin in your account. If you don't spend it within 30 days, it goes away. If they feel like there isn't enough economic activity, if you're in a depression or something, the money can just disappear if you don't spend it or it degrades, you know, loses its value quickly over that time period. So there's all kinds of tools that they'd have that they think could help manage the economy better, that they probably justify
1: doing. I'm afraid that reality is actually starting to mimic the worst scenarios that science fiction authors have come up with for potential dystopias. And the only thing that holds things together is the genetic predisposition of people to produce more than they consume and save the difference. Because we're like squirrels. We know that winter is coming and you've got to set something aside. So, people continue just because we're kind of wired that way genetically. This is really disturbing stuff. And what's the way out? Well, I know the way out. It would basically be to disband the US government. I mean, uh, start eliminating totally agencies. I'd have to default on the national debt. People say, oh, you can't do that. That's wrong. Well, it's going to be defaulted on. One way or another. Yeah, one way or another.
0: Honestly or dishonestly?
1: Exactly, and it's like when you have a building that's about to collapse, say a hundred story skyscraper that is going to collapse. well, what you've got to do is have a controlled demolition and bring it down rather than letting it fall unpredictably with no advance warning
0: That's a great metaphor,
1: so there's all kinds of things that could be done, but people are going to squeal like stuck pigs because they're particular hit out the cow is going to be cut off for them. And they're used to things the way they are. So I think we're going to wind up in a dictatorship of some type. I really do.
0: Yeah, it's hard to see how that doesn't happen one way or another, honestly. In the meantime, hopefully that's more than a couple of years away, but you can see things just cycling out of control so fast from where they are right now. It seems to me that with the combination of COVID and you know the fact, well, mostly it's driven by that. The, the benefit of living in cities has decreased. And businesses who can have their staff work remote are doing it. I guess the taboo nature of working remote has kind of gone away and the benefit of cities has clearly not as obvious as it once was. It seems to me that we're probably in or entering a highly mobile state for US peoples where we haven't been in a long time. Like we've gotten more and more static over the last couple of decades. And it seems to me we're going to enter a highly mobile state and You could just imagine you have a red and blue state sort of shuffling where those where whatever side people tend to lean to, they get a lot more of that as maybe people abandon to red states. And then it kind of sets you up for a scenario where how it's handled politically, it feels more like disunited nations rather than a United States. You know what I mean? It's like it's because they clearly have totally, clearly different values if this voting with your feet happens.
1: Yes. And I think you're quite correct. That's what's going to happen. But what is Washington, D.C., and the deep state that circulates around it, what's it going to do? How's it going to respond to this trend that I think you're describing very accurately? Well, if they want to unite the people, the best way to unite the people is to get a foreign enemy. So you start a war. And I think the Chinese are the most likely other dog in this fight. They'll fabricate something, and we'll have some type of a war-type situation with China, probably not with nuclear weapons. Because they're like uh, the last war's technology, uh, if you will. This next war could be worse in many ways with new technologies that are being developed. But I think the chances of something resembling World War III go up as the powers can see that happening.
0: I think so, too. And I think if you look at some of the domestic challenges that they have in China, it's almost like the Chinese could see it as good for them, too. You know, I mean, they need some sort of external distraction in order to have internal order.
1: That's right, because China is not a united country. I mean, it's true that 70 to 80% of the people in China are Han Chinese, but well over half the territory of the People's Republic are ethnically, linguistically, religiously, so forth, distinct Tibetans or Uyghurs or Mongolians. And within Han China proper, there are a couple hundred Small languages like just the area around Guangzhou and Hong Kong, about 70 million people. They don't speak Mandarin as their native language, they speak Cantonese. China could be divided into six or seven provinces, just like during the warlord days of the 30s. It could happen easily.
0: Yeah, well, if that happens, I think that's a terrifying prospect to me. And I'll just kind of end with this nightmare scenario. What are your thoughts on it? I just saw there's this report that was just published from this working group, I think it's the EMP Task Force, and it was published on as about Chinese EMP capabilities, their electromagnetic pulse capabilities. That, to me, is probably the most terrifying weapon that could be deployed, because it seems like even a nuclear weapon might wipe out a city. Maybe it could even cause much greater damage across, depending on how, to the extent, you know, they launched nuclear weapons, but EMPs just basically send everybody back to the dark ages in an instant and they're
1: terrifying. (laughs) Yes, that's true. I mean, it appears that just a couple or three of the right-sized nuclear bombs set off at the right altitude would create that electromagnetic pulse, and it would be like the, I think it was 1868, the Carrington event, Yep. where all the electronics would just be fried.
0: But all we had then was the telegram, really. That's basically it. That's our electronic infrastructure at the time.
1: Yeah, but this time, the utility grid would collapse. All the computers that weren't in Faraday cages would fry. Cars would fry because they're all electronically run. Airplanes. I mean, really, everything just fall out of the sky. Yep. Yeah, you know, you're right. That's a biggie. And there are some others. So that's the way they'll attack it. And, of course, biological warfare is certainly going to have its day in the sun. I mean, we'll have a much more advanced version of sending um plague-infested bodies over the city walls, like in the Middle Ages, viruses and bacteria that are bred specially to be virulent, and probably to genetically select so that I'm sure that Washington is uh, formulating viruses that just zero in on people with Chinese genes, and the Chinese are just zeroing in on people with European genes. It could really be something.
0: Yeah, you know, actually, even with the coronavirus in the early days of it, the millennials, I saw some memes online where they were calling it the boomer remover because it didn't appear to affect young people. And so they called it the boomer remover. And I'm like, well, I guess if you were going to engineer one and you felt like the health care and uh, social services costs were too high for seniors, this is one way to thin the herd. I'm sure not what it was, but it was funny that they jumped on that idea right away and came up with a funny name for it.
1: Well, I know since so many of Generation Z and millennials have been inculcated with socialism, they don't understand the ideas of production very well. They probably say, hey, there's all this great out there, and all these old people have it. Let's get rid of them, and then we can move into our McMansions.
0: Yeah, you're probably right. (laughs) It's terrible.
1: (laughs) It could be the movie Logan's Run.
0: Did you see that one? I don't think I saw Logan's Run, no. It's an old movie now. I'll put it on my list.
1: Post apocalyptic Washington DC, you got people living in the sewers or whatever. And part of the drill is that when you're thirty, the religion says you've got to go to heaven. So it's just young people. Anyway, kind of a fun movie.
0: Well, let's hope we don't get there. Because neither one of us would make that cut anymore.
1: No, unfortunately I find that I can't run the way I used to. So although I love listening to the Stone Street Fighting Man. I realize that at this point, I'd be more of a liability than an asset in an actual street fight. So I want to stay away from one.
0: Yeah, I think it's a good idea uh, as much as you can. And hopefully there'll be some way out of this that maybe an alien invasion that'll bring us new technology. Maybe we'll find some free energy source. Maybe something like that could still bail us out. Maybe technology will save the day once again.
1: Magic can always happen, I guess. It's, you know, It happens in books. I know that. <laughs> If we're left just hoping for
0: that, then uh, I guess it says a lot.
1: Yeah, it does.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much, Doug. I appreciate it. Next time we talk, we'll try and talk about something more optimistic, if we can find it.
1: Well, we can't talk about world events, then, can we?
0: No, but we can talk about this great book that's coming out very soon. Why don't you tell people about that again?
1: The third novel in my series of seven, called The High Ground Series, where our hero, Charles Knight, First, becomes a speculator, and uh, we explore the art of speculation in the form of a novel and a bush war in Africa, and mining and so forth. And then he becomes a drug lord. We go into everything about the legal and illegal drug trades, and uh, Charles uh, becomes a major drug lord. And then he has to go to jail for a couple of years. But now, an assassin. He's pissed off. They've uh, stolen two fortunes from him. He decides the state is his real enemy, and um, the best way to attack the state is personally. And it's got lots of twists, but assassin is uh, part of what he does. So this is going to be a really good book with a lot of um, revisionist history, but I'd urge listeners to get a hold of Speculator and Drug Lord, which are really good, and you don't want to fall behind the power curve as uh, this series develops. It's going to get really radical after
0: Assassin, too. So this isn't the radical one yet. Radical is still yet to come.
1: Now it's going to get much more radical after Assassin, because then comes Terrorist, and then comes Warlord, where he goes back to Africa. And here's where I explain in detail what I my hobby, which has been going to whole countries and explaining to the military dictator, preferably, how he can transform his country into... Singapore on steroids in a decade, then Antichrist, where it turns out that Charles is accused of being the Antichrist, but he's a good guy. I'm reforming all these unjustly besmirched occupations. <laughs> the seventh novel is Apocalypse, which uh, we wrap this all up. That's Apocalypse is going to be neat. So I've got to find a good movie producer, because I think it'll lend itself to it.
0: I think so too. And I, I think if you haven't read the first two, I definitely encourage you to go to Amazon and buy them. I am going to get my hands on Assassin as soon as I can. I've been eagerly awaiting it for a long time.
1: It's a pleasure talking to you.
0: Thank you, Doug. Take care. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to the Smith Sense Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to read more about Matt's thoughts on this topic and others, please visit his blog at smithsense.com where you can also read the
1: show notes, leave questions, and join the discussion. If you like what you've been hearing, please give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and sharing it with friends would go a long way. A quick thank you to Russ Rizzo for the show notes, to our engineer Jason Sanderson, and to the
0: wonderful Zoe Keating for the use of her beautiful music. I'm Anthony Bruno, and we've been sharing time with Matt Smith. Have a good week.